Dotnet Rocks, episode 1053, with guest Jen Myers. Recorded Friday, October 10th, 2014. It's time. Indeed. It's time for another episode of .NET Rocks. I'm so excited. You can ask, ask me why I'm excited, buddy. Why are you excited, buddy? Because I got to do some music that I hadn't done, you know, in a long time. My brother, you know, of course, hates the fact that I'm so busy because, you know, I'm taking away time for, you know, studio time where we could be writing charts and making music and stuff. So he finally says... Man, we got to play Green Earrings by Steely Dan. Green Earrings. Yeah, this is on the Royal Scam. So he sets aside a Saturday. I come into the studio and we transcribe the horn parts. It's a four-part horn section from a live uh, version that they did in 2006. It's on YouTube. And that was great fun. And so then we got to try to get a rehearsal together. Three of the four horns couldn't make it to the rehearsal. So I just put out a thing. You know, I just said, hey, who wants to come play some Steely Dan with us? We got a couple guys from the Coast Guard band, which is stationed right here in New London. Right. They're, you know, they're they're in the band, they they get benefits, they're musicians and they stay here. It's pretty cool, but they're also a traveling band. And they're great. They can read charts, no problem. And then we got uh, Steve Marion, who's like the best sax player in the area. I, you know, no offense to everybody else, but he's awesome. <laughs> and I set up some cameras and we made a little recording of it. Uh like after the f- First try, it was just nailed. Nice. Yeah, so so that'll be online soon. I'm just I just had a great night doing some music, some old stuff that uh that I've always wanted to do. So thanks Jay for making me do that. Nice. That's cool. Yeah. All right, man, let's roll the better know framework music. All right. Okay, what do you got? It ain't no Steely Dan, I'll tell you that. That music. <laughs> Jen's like, what? I don't hear any music. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we put it in after. It all happens later. All right. Well, anyway, um, David Bush sent this to me uh, as a better know framework fodder. Mm -hmm. If I haven't seen it already, he says, and he just gives me a URL. And it's cshtml5.com. As in C sharp, html5.com. Huh. Yeah. Take a look at this and tell me what you think it is. C-sharp XAML for HTML5. Who said you can't go cross-platform? So basically, these guys are implementing a C-sharp to HTML5 CSS uh, converter. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's basically just a teaser site right now, right? Well, if you go to learn more, you can see some of the stuff that they do, and they have some sample apps, and these are oh, nice HTML browser apps. Oh, again, you, and I can download the beta right now. That's right. Um, but I think you have to apply for it. You have to like send in your uh, email address, and then they give you access to it. Cool. They, they're they're limiting the beta to five thousand people, so I don't know how many they have. I got on it. I haven't had time to play with it, but um, I'm looking at some of these apps and and what they've implemented and the types that they've implemented, and most of it's coming soon. Right. You know? Async await, coming soon. Link, coming soon. Yeah, those are kind of really important things. So, But if you think about it, that is a really tough nut to crack, isn't it? Yeah, no it? kidding. I mean, it's one thing to look at a a XAML app and say, how would I recreate this with HTML and CSS? Yeah, it's not markup that's the problem. Yeah. It's all the infrastructure, the .NET framework, that's the problem. Yeah. And until we have a JavaScript version of the .NET framework, which... Uh, please, please don't do that. That wouldn't be good. Chills that would, up that my would be spine bad. thinking about that. But, you know, until we have that, or some equivalent binary that runs in the browser, then, uh Yeah. It's going to yeah, be hard. There are other ways to get this done. I, these things just don't map that nicely, but I'm fascinated to see where they get to. I am fascinated, too. It's kind of like an accident. You have to slow down. <laughs> you're, you're watching a collision in slow motion. Yeah, you really are. It's a collision of, uh, of cultures and a collision of technologies. It's pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah. I love it. All right, buddy. Well, I'll keep an eye on it, too. That's really interesting. It is really interesting. And thanks to David Bush for pointing it out to me. Nice find. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 974, the one we did with Tim Thomas 
on holistic design. That was part of that superhero series. That's remember? right. We did. That was good fun. Yeah. And uh, and Jonathan Gallagher has sent us this comment. He said, great show. It occurs to me that one reason that we as a community have largely given up on trying to innovate in the UI is because we've insisted on creating our UIs with tools only slightly better than Notepad, which cuts up most actual artists and makes the whole process significantly more painful for those who get saddled with the task of making a not horrible UI. Indeed. Granted, creating responsive pages of variable size is a very hard problem that only gets harder when you try to auto-generate code via WYSIWYG editor to open the work up in a wider variety of designers. But surely we have enough brain power to create at least one application capable of solving the problem. The bigger hurdles are probably developers' desire to own their entire application, including the bits that they're bad at building and the expense of creating and adopting any new technology when there are adequate alternatives available for free. You know what this comment reminded me of? A comment that Rocky Latka said one time when he was talking about Silverlight back in the early days of Silverlight when the tooling was just dreadful. Yeah. He sort of had to write some code and look at some code. And he said, the reason we're being more successful with Silverlight than uh, than the WPF people are being uh, is because web developers are used to crappy tools. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, WPF in theory was replacing for WinForms and the WinForm designers were amazing. Yeah. And we didn't think they were amazing. That's just what we expected. Right. And nothing has ever come close. Yeah. And you look at how responsive web design pages are made. You know, it's still very much write little code, refresh a web page, look at it for a while. Is that right? Make it bigger, make it smaller. You know, like it, it's, it isn't a nice tool. It's still very much I have a code window and I have a view of what I'm making. Right. I suspect the only reason we're able to do responsive web design is that our development platforms have big enough screens that you can see those things side by side. Right. It's really, really hard. So I think John's point is well made, and thank you for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. If you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Android, Windows 8, iOS, and Windows Phone 7 and 8. And that brings us to our guest today. Jen Myers is an independent web designer, developer, and teacher. In 2011, she founded the Columbus, Ohio chapter of Girl Develop It. Or is it Girl Develop IT? Which is it, Jen? It's, it's Girl Develop It, but it kind of has that play on IT at the same time. It's very meta. That's very cool. Well, anyway, it's an organization that provides introductory coding classes aimed at women and currently co-leads the Girl Develop It Chicago chapter. She speaks regularly about design development and diversity and focuses on finding new ways to make both technology and technology education accessible to everyone. Welcome, Jen. Uh, we talked to you on the tablet show at OrDev a That's while right. ago and went back when we had the tablet show. And But, you know, this is a continuum of that conversation. So thanks for coming back. Well, thank you for inviting me. And I really appreciated your position, unlike many others that we had had, talking about you need a designer. You're like, hey, developers can design. You just have to know the rules. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, education in general is a big thing of mine. And I think that's a part of it. It's just empowering everybody to learn about other things. It's, it's, make, it's a cool thing. Yeah, it's more than one way to actually get this done. But you you seem to be taking on user interface design as a whole. Are we all doing it wrong? Well, I got to be honest. I don't know if I can make that determination. Um, uh-huh. I'm interested in it as a whole because it, it, it's an interesting problem to me to try to solve. I can't say that I feel like I've solved it or am any maybe anywhere near it. But I do think it's maybe I just know enough to know that it is a large problem and something that we should think about how we're addressing it. The, this, um, and I don't mean to derail the conversation, but uh, this um, uh, girl develop it and sort of adoption of design in general, you, do you think that people are tentative to try new things? I mean, this is something that you talk about. Are we hesitant because why? Why are we hesitant to try new things? We think we're not going to be able to figure it out. It's going to be a waste of time. We're going to fail. What's the, what's the general idea there? Well, I think there's a lot of different things. Um, I, I, I think you hit on some of them. It's definitely a complex problem. I do think that in the development world though, that we live in, we tend to really gravitate towards and raise up on pedestals people who are effortless geniuses at things. Who you know, Seemingly. There's this, 
well, seemingly, that's a very important yeah. word there. But even like thinking about what we see in movies or shows of the stereotypical computer genius as somebody who just sits down and moves their fingers and just does things magically, right? Right. And and I know that's a silly stereotype, but those type of stereotypes exist for reasons. You know, there's there's a certain cultural mythology around what we do and that if we're not really good at something, the, I think there we've built a culture that doesn't really support that. Um, I think everybody has a real hard time stretching out of their comfort zone or doing something new because they might fail. And we just don't support that as a learning culture. Um, so I think that that it goes into a lot of different factors. It's something that I've talked about when talking about um, between design and development and how developers can learn design. That's okay. Let's try it. Um, and vice versa, or other um, minority groups who haven't been as supported in learning this, such as women or, or other minority groups. Um, it, it's easier when we have a culture that it's okay to make mistakes and we'll support each other and help each other learn from them, um, to have new people come in and try new things. And really, that's where innovation comes from, too, because nobody is too scared to try something new. You know, I've, I've been spending a lot of time in the DevOps world these days, and I've been going after senior management around this idea of, are your people allowed to fail? What are the consequences of failure? And just how toxic, toxic our behavior gets after a while when we cannot make mistakes, when it's we true. have to cover them up, when we have to be certain that anything decision we make is always going to be right. Definitely. I think that's something that I, I know has always held me back in my own learning and my own career. And I see it mirrored in a lot of other people too. It's kind of, well, what would be the worst thing if you got something wrong? You know, usually it's, it's going to be okay. Um, actually, we usually create many more and much worse problems by, you know, covering up the fact that we don't know right. or, um, you know, not reaching out for help or asking questions. So we're actually doing ourselves a disservice by all, you know, perpetuating a culture where it's not okay to make mistakes and not okay to fail. Um, I think that, yeah, if we could change that assumption that we're supposed to be awesome at everything right out of the gates, um, and then we should only stick to the things that were awesome and, and never, you know, deviate from that. If we could, you know, kind of smash that, we open up a lot of new avenues and ideas. There is something about software that makes me bounce between I am a god and I have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah, and I think that's why we get good at it and why it looks like magic to other people. It's just because we're willing to live with that uncertainty of, huh, I don't know that. I'm going to have to figure that out. It's probably going to take me a couple hours, but I'll figure it out. You know, we trust in our ability to figure stuff out. I, I do think a lot of people, th that is a difference between people who are able to thrive in this industry and the people who are not, is this idea of trusting in your ability to be able to figure things out. And um, I think that, that that's something that you can learn, though, too. And not and some people have to learn that. And that is something that I've, I've encountered um, a lot more with women. And I think there's the stakes for women making mistakes, especially in a field where they're in the minority, are a lot higher. Yeah. And a lot of women, you know, there's, there's research that has been done about um, applying for jobs. And a lot of women, if they don't have every single thing on the list of qualifications are at 100% in all those qualifications, they usually won't apply. Whereas men are, if they have, you know, about half of them, or they just trust they can figure the rest out and they just jump in. Um, and so there, there's some weird societal expectations that, that we are instilling in people and that holds back people too. But this idea of learning to learn and learning how to figure things out in a general sense is a skill just like any other. And we can teach that and everybody can learn it. Well, and I love that you apply this to design as well, because it's, it's, it's one thing to say, I could figure out JavaScript, or I could figure out web development, so forth. But just to, to get into making stuff look good and making user interfaces compelling, I, I think we want to put that in a pe on a pedestal as a weird art that requires people in turtlenecks to do. Oh, definitely. That, that's a absolute definite mythology that exists out there. And that's something I've definitely talked about before, where... Um, I think that's perpetuated by a couple different things. It's the things that we've been talking about in general, where we we value magical expertise. But I think that we do that twofold when it comes to anything artistic or creative. It, it's all very mysterious, and there's a lot of mythology built up around the idea of artists getting divine inspiration or lightning bolts, and they just produces something magically. Um, and you know, for pure art, maybe that happens a little bit more. But that's another. Thing to keep in mind is that design is not necessarily pure art. It's not just self-expression. We we use design to solve problems. 
Yeah. And so um, it has its own guidelines. It has its own rules. And they're not necessarily maybe as clear or as uh, direct as rules in other disciplines are, but they exist. There are reasons that we would make one design decision over another. So it's something that people can understand and, and, exact, and learn about and build up their skills in. And I hate to be nostalgic for, but I guess I am nostalgic for the days when Microsoft put out a design document that said, here's how the multiple document interface is supposed to work. You have a a container, a toolbar across the top, a menu above that, files on the right, helps, uh, files on the left, helps on the right. Like, you knew how stuff was supposed to go together, and it just doesn't seem to be that equivalent today. I don't think there's as universal... A set of resources as that, but I do think that there is a movement to create those. Um, and when, especially thinking about, I, I work primarily just in web development, and there's definitely a lot of people who are working on putting together style guides. And there's been a, lo- a lot of companies recently who have been surfacing their internal guidelines for things like CSS and right. um, their organizational strategies. And I think that's a step in the right direction. And I, I just recently became an independent contractor and got back into the production world after being a, an instructor for a while. Um, so I'm back in a consultancy and I'm learning a little bit more about uh, the new, the, all the fancy new ways that I haven't learned over the past year and a half of how to organize uh, design and interface resources over large projects. And it's actually exciting. There's, there isn't a lot that I think is the, um, the baseline that everybody knows about and everybody does as a standard. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of new ideas and resources out there in terms of how we organize this and how do we make this clear to everybody that this is the way the UI should look on for this particular project. And so if you need to refer back to anything, here you go. So yeah, I agree with you that we don't have a universal standard yet, but I think more people are starting to realize that we need to develop more of these type of rules for lack of a better term. I don't tend to like rules, but sometimes you need them. Right. And this is one of those times where it's a good thing to develop them. Well, and I, I feel like responsive web design is kind of on the edge of this that this is this be- the best we've got right now. It's just that most folks look at responsive design and just says it works in a phone and on a tablet and on a PC, and it sort of stops there. There's no real design definition around there. Yeah, responsive design is an interesting topic for me personally. So I, I mentioned before that I, I work in this intersection of design and development, but mm-hmm. I don't have a formal design background. Um, I actually studied computer science years ago in school. And so um, I... I I like design. It comes very naturally to me. I'm very visually inclined, so I I can do that pretty well. Um, But when it comes to web design, I first learned how to make things for the web by just learning how to do HTML in a browser well Mm -hmm. before I got into any sort of design principles or Photoshop or anything like that. So to me, the web has always been a dynamic medium. And, and, you know, software is, no matter what type of interface we're developing, we're still dealing with a lot of um, dynamic elements. And the the web specifically is always been dynamic. And I've always designed websites and interfaces for web applications with this dynamic nature in mind. So the fact that we're not designing something that is going to be on a poster and it's going to be perfect right down to um, the the last little detail, that we're designing something that people are going to be looking on with different screen sizes. Even back in the day, you know, you right. had different monitor sizes. And you and, and when I started learning HTML in around 2000, I, something that I was always very aware of is I was accessing the internet on a dial-up connection. And so yeah. things like bandwidth and image sizes and, you know, I was just very aware that there were a lot of factors that went into play for people who are accessing this information. So to me, responsive design comes very naturally out of that. And I think it's only unnatural to the people who are coming to it from a, a more uh, a stricter perspective, for lack of a better term, or an idea that doesn't really, or a perspective that doesn't really understand the, the fluid nature of the web. I think that one of the keys of making sure that responsive design is, is getting across the way it needs to is going all the way back to realizing the medium that we're working with. I think there's a, a problem in uh, education anyway, at least when people are trying to teach kids about the web. I've come across this in my own uh, schooling is that they're using these high-level programs, you know, to generate HTML instead of talking about HTML, JavaScript, CSS, 
which I, I'm sorry, but I think that anyone who's going to be doing this for, you know, uh, any, with any amount of seriousness is going to have to start there. Just for what you're saying, you know, you, you get a sense of what is really going on. Oh, I agree. I, one of my favorite anecdotes, well, kind of favorite that, that I tell a lot is when I was in college, which again was around, I think I was around 2002, 2003 is when I, I started and I was majoring in computer science, but I was teaching myself HTML and doing a lot of web design on the side. And we had one web design class at the college. And so I took it and I actually got in trouble from the instructor for using the HTML, the code view of the WYSIWYG that we were making web pages in. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, because I, w- I was supposed to be working just the WYSIWYG and not working in HTML. And she actually told me straight up that there's no point in learning HTML because in a couple years, everything was going to be Flash. Right. And I ended up dropping the class <laughs> and, and walking away from that. Yeah, I had a similar experience with my daughter. She had a, a web design class in school, and, and it was all Dreamweaver, and was getting marks on her, you know, demerits for not using the right font. It it just couldn't, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, really? You need some more flash here. No, those colors are wrong. What? You know? Completely blew my mind. Yeah, I I am not for that at all. I have a nine-year-old daughter, and I started teaching her HTML a couple of years ago. And she has her own website. It's very bare bones. We have a little CSS in there for colors and things like that. But I wanted to make sure that she at least is exposed to how to do it the the you know the the way that I think that you need to understand on the bottom level before she gets into anything else. Yeah, I. We've gone through this cycle a few times where we keep wanting to abstract away because WinForms did this. You, in theory, a WinForms file is just a text file. You could manually edit it. Nobody does. You use the designer for everything. So there is a, you know, there are some precedents here for doing it that way, but nobody builds XAML pages out touching XAML and nobody builds HTML pages out built touching HTML. And we've tried a few times, but it always gets hideous. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know if there's a better solution about how to deal with them, but I will say I've discovered the same thing in my own work is there's never been an option that has ever come close to just writing it the way I want it to be. And I think that also goes into, like, I have used exporter programs before and seeing the HTML that comes out of that is terrifying. Right. <laughs> so I, I've never seen a tool that, that comes near to getting it right. And, you know, it's it's not just that I don't like the way it looks. It's there's performance issues and there's cross browser issues and th- there's legitimate issues in, in the HTML that comes out of that, that um, is going to hurt our overall site or application or whatever we're making. So maybe on the other hand, it's not so much that we, um, have to come up with a better tool, but we just have to elevate. I, I will say too, I usually have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder because in the development world, the people who are good at HTML and CSS are usually a little bit lower on the ladder in terms of importance. So um, I feel like it's always an afterthought to this type of stuff, but it contributes to how people are using what you make. So I think maybe elevating the importance of it might help this across the board. Because a guy who's really good at CSS, or a girl, let us not be gender specific here, is a magician, I think. CSS, to me, seems to be the ugly part of the web now. Because we got pretty clean HTML, and even JavaScript has got itself in a nice place. Well, it's ugly to us, Richard, isn't it? Well, I, I guess that's my question, Jen. Is there beautiful CSS? Could I could I ever get to a place where I would look at CSS and go, wow, that's elegant? I think there is, but I agree with your essential point, which is that I think what you're getting at is CSS was not developed with that in mind. It's, it's a little hacky, right? Which is essentially what happened to JavaScript too. You know, it was JavaScript started out as a designer language. And so it never, it's not that great of a language. I personally never really liked JavaScript because I find it confusing and weird (laughs) and it essentially is, but it's become uh, important and popular enough recently that there's been a lot of kind of retroactive uh, restructuring of the language so that it's more legitimate now. And I think that 
CSS is starting to get that way. It they just it's, it wasn't developed in the first place to be taken seriously as something that we're going to use to the extent that we use it. Um, I, I definitely think there's a lot of tools out there, things like CSS compilers, like SAS. Um, I use SAS pretty much exclusively now to work right. with CSS, and it gives you all the fun stuff like var like variables are wonderful and. Um, there's amazing thing. I can't even go through the whole list that just gives you a whole bunch of extra power, all kinds of different calculations that you can do and um, different frameworks. And doesn't it abstract you a bit from the ugliness of CSS? It does. So, you know, the funny of this, this is a corollary to something like Dreamweaver, where Dreamweaver protected you from how ugly HTML was back in those days in the HTML4 era. But it made even uglier HTML. You just didn't have to look at it. And right now, while CSS, which is the youngest of these three technologies, is going through the same awkward adolescence, we're having tools that protect ourselves from it. Yeah, to a certain extent. I think that it depends on how overreaching the tool is. Something like Dreamweaver pretty much obliterates your ability to interact with HTML, right? right. Um, I think SAS is it's not quite as powerful, so there's more of a potential for using it correctly <laughs> because you can abuse <laughs> SAS, right? Like, you know, one of the great things about SAS that I always teach, I do teach can a... Can we define SAS? I'm sorry. So SAS is um, one of the CSS uh, precompilers. It's essentially a language that you can write in that extends CSS and then it compiles um, to regular CSS when you're all done. There's a few of them out there. That less is another one. Less is what comes packaged with boot, Twitter Bootstrap. So a lot of people use that. Stylus is another one. I tend to use SAS because it's Ruby based and I work in Ruby environments most of the time. Um, I, I actually don't know exactly what it stands for. It, it is an acronym. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure somebody knows offhand. I don't. <laughs> Syntactically awesome style sheets. <laughs> SAS. That sounds about right. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, but one of the things that, oh, I, I do teach introductory classes for SAS and one of the first things that I introduce students to and then uh, immediately warn them about is the idea that you can nest in SAS. So instead of um, writing long, strung out selectors with several levels, you can just nest them all within each other and the output CSS will automatically string those selectors along. Um, but at the, t at the same time, if you start nesting too many levels deep, then you're going to end up with really messy CSS. Right. So... There, there's, uh, it's one of those things that you still need to be aware of that you can produce really awful <laughs> CSS with this. Um, so it's a little dangerous, but I don't think it's as dangerous as something like Dreamweaver where completely distances you from it. So yeah, it's, it's definitely like you said, we're in, a, it's in a evolution period and a growing period. And basically they're trying to fill the holes that should be in CSS in the first place. So if, um, you know, specifications and, things like that move very slowly. So maybe we'll start incorporating these into a more fully formed styling language as we go along. But for right now, this is the best we got. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again. You know it. It's time to overcome the shy politeness of CSS and get sassy. <laughs> or at least a little bit stylish. Okay. Or stylus. Stylish. Right. Nice. Yeah. Okay. No, nothing. I was funny. No, I'm talking. Jen's completely horrified. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing to my show? No, I, I've heard them all at this point. I'm sure you have, <laughs> and that was one of them. It's actually time to give away a Component One Studio Enterprise package to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who won today. Check out the .NET controls for professional developers at Component One. Whether you're building the most modern touch-enabled apps or maintaining and updating legacy applications, Component One's flagship product, Studio Enterprise, helps to deliver rich, responsive desktop and web apps on time and under budget. Check them out at ComponentOne.com. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Michael Sicola. Ah, congratulations, Michael. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Round of applause for Michael. All right, get out of here with those things. It's actually, uh, <laughs> Michael just won the uh, Component One uh, Studio Enterprise. Big pile of awesome from Component One. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .netrocks fan club. 
We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we give away some great stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away $5,000 of technology to one lucky member of the fan club. Coming right up here. Very soon. Indeed. Just a couple yeah. of months. And we'd like to ask our guest, Jen, on this show anyway, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology right now, what would you buy? Oh, I... That's a difficult question for me, um, mainly because I'm a little strange in the sense that I'm not much of a gadget person, so I don't have ready answers for that sort of thing. I like to have the things that I need, and as long as they're what I need, I don't really care much beyond them. So I'm not one that, that likes a lot of flashy stuff. Um, but I will say, like I mentioned before, that I have a nine-year-old daughter, and she is all about gadgets. So ah. <laughs> if I had that, I would probably get her, you know, some. She she's a big video gamer, so I'd probably get her some nice video game equipment, and then maybe she could show me how to use it. Nice. Would like a nice MacBook Pro or something like that. Yeah, she has my old MacBook. She definitely could use some new stuff. I was talking about you. Oh, for me. <laughs> yes, that's the thing. I mean, I have a nice little one, but I, I don't I don't know. It does what I need it to do and I don't think about it much beyond that. So okay. that's very, very admirable. I, I am. I'm I'm totally honest. It's a weird thing. So <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I just need to educate myself more about the cool stuff that's out there. <laughs> if you have no desire, clearly people have not shown you the desirable things. <laughs> It could be possible. Uh, that that might be it. It could be that she's just, you know, not uh, as, uh, what shall I say, attracted to this kind of geeky technology as we are. But, you know, you could do the Robert Scoble thing and say, yeah, I'd just give it to my favorite charity. So maybe, maybe the uh, girl develop it. You know, you could donate it to there. Yeah, I got to be perfectly honest. I, w I would love the idea of uh, buying a bunch of uh, simple technology for large people. I, I guess I'm more interested in solving t those type of people problems. Yeah. And that, that does sound pretty cool to me. We could definitely <laughs> distribute it to lots of people. A bunch of Arduino things or some Netduino or Gadgeteer. I mean, you, five grand, you could probably build a pretty good IoT lab yeah. for Girl Develop It. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a good point, too. I have seen recently a lot of friends who are playing with um, some simple robotics and, and things like that. And that's something I've never done anything with. So, yeah, maybe that would be my answer. I would um, start working with some, some simple robotics and having fun with that because that sounds interesting to me. And definitely something that captures the younger generation, too. You know, I feel like we've gotten so esoteric in a lot of software development now. The, the, the power of blinking an LED or rolling something around the floor is very compelling for folks who, who haven't been immersed in this before. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And it just sounds like fun. So yeah, maybe maybe that's something I should look into more. So let's talk about redesigning the interface. I think we've pretty much nailed to the wall that, that uh, HTML hasn't solved all of the problems yet. I don't think anything has. I also think the problem space has gotten much larger with the diversity of screen sizes and the variety of input methods now besides touch and keyboard, I almost feel like the pen's making a comeback in these new tablets. Yeah, it's definitely a strange landscape for people who are, I think, wading into it after coming from either um, a different perspective years ago or in it from the first time. So it's, yeah, I, I, like I said, I don't know if I have set answers for, for where we are now, where it's going exactly. I just know there's a lot of interesting things going on. I think keeping aware of all of these is the key. Just the fact that we are moving and things are fluid and there isn't one right answer right now. And we're, we're looking for lots of different solutions because I think that's what keeps us still trying out new things. Are you finding any customers wanting to try to get their web pages to work well with touch interfaces, not just a normal keyboard and mouse? I think that a lot of customers are still figuring it out themselves. So a lot of them don't have many specific requests like that. Right. I think that they're becoming aware that, oh, I have an iPad now and I want it to work on that. And I, yeah, I really do feel like everything's just kind of in flux right now. We're figuring all of it out. So I think that a lot of clients are still just coming to the realization that, oh, we, we can optimize for one of these things or the other, or we can prioritize that it needs to work in this format. And hey, since it's in this format, we can explore some of the options that are unique to this format or, or consider some of the restraints that are unique to this format. 
but I haven't seen a lot of really getting to the, that detail yet. I think it's still, still emerging. And I think that that's where we as the makers of all of this have to be super on top of it so that we, we can guide people towards the right solutions because yeah, it's almost overwhelming right now figuring out what you can do and wh what you want out of all of that. Yeah, I'm totally with you. And there are no standards around a lot of this stuff. Folks are, are fighting to try and, and figure out how the pieces are actually supposed to go together. So you're, I mean, you're sticking to the web space so far, not trying to deal with native apps of any kind, just all web all the time? Yeah, for me personally, I, d I do primarily just work in the web. Um, I'm not, I, I, that's one of the reasons that I am interested in the web as a format because it's much more flexible when you're working in a native app. There, there are certain things that you can do and have to do and can't do at the same time. So I tend to, to not work in within native environments as much personally. Um, but the, it is, I'm more interested in seeing how we can make things flexible for everybody. But there are definitely a unique set of restraints and, and challenges when it comes to thinking about how we're doing native apps these days. Sure. Well, and again, I feel like everybody's groping around. This diversity of tools is a byproduct of there's some we're, we're trying to figure out what the whole problem is and, and coming up lots of different ways to solve it. All the hybrid implementations and so forth. Nothing standing out. They've all got strengths and weaknesses. I agree with you completely. I think that's that's exactly where we are now is there's there's so much out there and everybody is just figuring this out. Even the people who are kind of on the edges of the expertise and doing the talks and things like that, I don't feel like they've completely figured it out either. Um, and I don't, I don't think anybody's claiming to have figured it out, honestly. Yeah. But yes, I, I feel absolutely when it comes to um, interfaces and the amount of devices and everything that's going on now, we are definitely in a huge amount of flux and learning. For sure. Jen, do you have a, a list of do's and don'ts that you, you know, wh everywhere you go, tell people in, in the design milieu? Honestly, I don't have a set list because I, you know, I, I think this is a, a developer thing in general, but th there's always that ca caveat that it depends, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so sometimes there are some Good guidelines, but it depends on what problem you're trying to solve. I do think in general, what I try to follow myself and teach other people to follow is that you want to focus on the functionality and making sure that people are able to, to accomplish what they need to accomplish over making sure that it looks really slick and fancy. Hmm. I think that a, a really typical first a designer problem or anybody who who tries to to work on UI stuff is immediately going for what what looks cool or or would be fun to play around with, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what's going to accomplish the functionality or the problem, whatever you're trying to do, as efficiently or possible or at all. I have seen things before where people have started messing around with UI elements, um, and like colors and. Um, or even, you know, more subtle things, and it actually interferes with functionality. So mm -hmm. one of the main things I try to get across to people is your absolute priority is making sure you're accomplishing the action that you need to accomplish, and everything is in service of that. So that's the only number one guideline that I think needs to carry across. Right. If you, get, if you get focused on, you know, making it look a particular way or having a feature that you really want, you may actually end up doing something drastically stupid to get there. Definitely. And and it's very important to always keep in mind that a, a good design and good UI doesn't really have a whole lot with looking pretty. Um, those are very separate things. Something can look pretty, and if you can't use it, then it's a really bad design. <laughs> so I think <laughs> a lot of times design and pretty are, are treated as their synonymous terms, and they're really not at all. Sometimes the best designs are are the more minimal designs that don't have a lot of bells and whistles, but they, they get done what needs to get done. Um, and I, I tend to gravitate to those type of UIs myself. Yeah, how much are we just at a point where we're pursuing good enough? You know, responsive web design doesn't seem to provide a perfect solution for any one device, but it does work on all of them and isn't that good enough. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for good enough, honestly. Um, again, it depends on what your your baseline is that you're 
uh, of accomplishment. Um, for me, I, I would value being able to do something across multiple platforms with relative ease rather than having a really amazing experience that only works on one particular platform. Um, although, again, of course, it depends. It depends on what you're building. If, if you're building a small um small application for a, a small purpose that you know is only going to be used in this one circumstance um, on this one device um, with these these amount of constraints and, and privileges and all of that, well, you know, then go to town, design something that works just for that. But if you can't determine that, then I think that it makes a lot more sense to say, well, what's going to work across all of these different factors that we have to deal with and go for the one that hits the most the most notes on that. And I, yeah, I guess this gets into the, you know, you're always what's the spend situation. If this really is an app that only lives in one place on one kind of client, then the overhead of responsive web design is not worthwhile. Like you're just spending money unnecessarily there because it's, it is definitely harder to build a page that behaves like that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think that's one of the, the most important things in the design process is to, at the very beginning, decide, you know, what does this have to accomplish? And if it's only going to, uh, fulfill one specific purpose, then yeah, you design for that. Um, if it's going to have to fill lots of different purposes or you, there's a lot of unknowns, then you, know, you have to go to a lower common denominator. But I think that that is, a po I think that's a positive and I think it's a good part of the design process. Yeah, it's so much of this seems to be discovery in the first place. I just don't think many people think about the UI at this level. Like just getting sitting down with the customer, really think about what they want. I mean, you're doing this now. You're an independent consultant. How many folks do you deal with that that know what they want here? Do you have to basically derive it from their actions? Oh, this ought to be good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll be careful answering this one. Um, <laughs> Here's the yeah. Here's the. It is a little bit more difficult when you're dealing. You're building something for people because everybody uses UIs, right? So this is something that you people interact with on a regular basis. So they have a sense of familiarity with this, and um, it's very easy when you are describing something that you want to get built to be very prescriptive in how you're describing it and be like, oh, I want to drop down here. Um, it's the job of the designer or the person who's thinking about the UI to not just accept that, but to, um, to push back a little bit and try to get at the heart of what the actual problem is to solve. I usually right. equate it. My favorite analogy to use is, is, is if you are a doctor, if somebody walked into your office and be like, yeah, I have this sickness, so I need you to prescribe me this medication. It's kind of like, no, that's my job as a doctor. Right. So right. instead what you want is somebody who's describing their symptoms and then you apply your expertise to give them the correct solution to the problem. Um, so uh, if you're somebody who's thinking about the UI, again, your, your job is to solve the problem. So if you're not, if you're just being given a certain solution, you still need to do the due diligence to determine what the root problem is. And if that actually is the best solution for it, maybe it is, but maybe it isn't, or maybe right. you can uh, suggest a better solution. Um, and that's, that's part of your job to do. So it's very important to be able to ask the right questions and really determine what the root problem is so that you can diagnose it correctly. Yeah. Don't let them tell you your job. Definitely. And it, it's, it is a little bit harder these days because I think that the level and quality of design UI is getting progressively higher. I think right. everybody is used to dealing with some pretty sophisticated UIs these days. And that's exciting and great. Um, but you don't, again, coming back to my earlier point is you want to be careful. You're never just accepting the surface of those right. and not getting back to solving the problems underneath. Um, we could end up with a ton of websites that all look like, you know, Airbnb and that's great. But if they don't do anything similar to Airbnb, then you just have something that looks like, you know, has the polish and surface that isn't going to actually solve your problems. But it, it, does it help you as a designer when they show you designs they like? It definitely helps in the sense of um, understanding their um, their needs and their preferences, and also their the language that they use to describe wh what they're looking for. Um, sometimes we use words when we're talking about design that are subjective. So when I say something is clean, I you know that's a little bit 
subjective and in terms of you may say it's clean and we might be talking about completely different styles, but we're right. using the same word to describe them. And they may have some similarities, but if I'm designing a UI for you, I need a little bit more description than that. So a lot of times having visual representation can provide those extra details and just give you a sense of, oh, when they're using these type of words, this is what they mean. They mean something right. like this. Um so, so when you say clean, you mean this UI, which may not be what you think of when you think of clean. Definitely. And I, I think also just giving visual examples, these are usually easy to, to get across what you're talking about. Um, and, and it is good to see how people have solved similar problems to what you need to solve. It doesn't mean that you immediately just pick and choose from other designs um, and collage them all together for your own. Um, but seeing what people have done before is, is very useful. I think that goes for design as, as well as development. Um, seeing other people's solutions to problems gives you insight on your own solutions. The typical thing that I see people doing lately is just, just go to Bootstrap, you know, go look through all the templates and see some Bootstrap templates that you like and pick one. And we'll use that, you know, it just sort of offloads the whole style thing to to uh to bootstrap you seeing because i'm it seems like every website for every little web thing that comes up these days is is you know is in that bootstrap style whether or not they're using it i don't know but do you find that's true i do find that's true <laughs> it's definitely a interesting experience to to go around and ask people who are um in this uh front-end design world what they think about bootstrap <laughs> um it's, I think it's a great tool for some circumstances, but I agree with you that if you use it as a one-size-fits-all design solution, then you're probably doing yourself and, and others a disservice. Um, it's, it's one of those very powerful tools that has a very particular purpose, and, and using it to serve other purposes gets to your point of it, it, it's just a one-size-fits-all solution, and it, it may not fit the problem at hand very well. So I, I do think that it's, it's something that needs to be wielded a lot lighter than it tends to be these days. Jen, I appreciate what you're talking about here because it feels to me almost like the same pattern we go through just designing software too, where you, you're just trying to get a glossary together of the way th your customer's thinking about their product. But of course, when you talk about design, it's got to be a little more visual. Look at different designs and talk about what you like and what you don't like and how you feel about those things so that you get a view of what the customer what appeals to the customers and you can start constructing something that fits with their expectations right up front. Definitely. I think, I think that there are far more similarities between design and development that a lot of people realize, which is also one of the reasons I've always talked about having more communication between the two because they're, they're very similar. They're, they're both just problem solving. You're just using slightly different tools to solve the problems. Um, and, and if there's the same aspect of, the same problem, essentially, which is building some piece of, of an application for somebody, um, then they, they really need to go together. So I think that people understanding that this tool set is not arcane or magical and they can be used to solve problems very much in the same way as development is a really important thing. And, I mean, you mentioned SAS as one of your favorite tools. Is there other things you use to, to help you get to the design quickly? SAS is definitely the biggest one. I, I work a lot with static site generators, things like Jekyll and Middleman. And those are really great ways to be able to get a web server going and use these compiling tools like SAS and um, you know other, other gems or whatever you might need to do that is a little bit more on the, the programmery type side. Um, but it it ends up exporting some static HTML. And so it's a, it's a really nice way to put together prototypes. It's a nice way to put together quick static sites that you need to show off something visually. Um, so I do a lot of work with static site generators too. Um, those are my main ones. I think that I, I don't use a lot of image editing software because I like to do things very much in the browser. Right. Um, so if I need to do four graphics, I will I will do that, but try to keep it very minimal and do pretty much everything in the browser from the beginning. I, I will typically do some wireframes, uh, usually on paper. Like I'll just 
literally sketch them, so I don't use a lot of heavy software or anything. Um, right. I have in the future, and occasionally if I've had to produce wireframes, I do that. But for my own personal process, I tend to like keep it very light. I'll do some sketching, and then I'll immediately start um, setting up a, a static site, or depending on if I'm, I know it's going to go into a Rails app or something later, which is typically what I'm working in, I'll spin up a really simple Rails app, um, and then just start building out a design from there and doing it all in browser. And that's usually what my workflow is like. Do you find if you show them like the beginning of a real site, they get stuck on colors and position and things like minor stuff rather than the major stuff? That is definitely something that can happen. Yeah. That's one of the reasons that I like working in the browser from the very beginning, because it, uh, it puts the focus a little bit more on the process and the functionality rather than, Hey, here is a pretty picture. And, and it's very easy to get caught on. Well, I don't like that one color or I don't like where that mm -hmm. box is right there yeah. at a point where it might not be um, important to, to focus on that. Again, that's part of your job as a designer to make sure that what you're putting out there is, is in the right context and easily understandable for the people who are providing feedback on it. So I, yeah, I think that being able to have some, some dynamic live examples from the beginning helps get better feedback. Jen, um, we're coming about down to the end of the show. Is there anything that we missed that you want to mention before we wrap it up? I don't think so. I actually think you guys did a really great job of hitting on all the points that I like to make when I'm talking about um, UIs. So I think we covered everything. Well, that's great. Jen, thank you very much for joining us here this hour. And thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.